You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and to get ready to study God's Word together. You started everyone clapping. You should follow me everywhere, brother. It's so awesome. When I enter a room, all right, it's good. It's great to see you. Uh, if you are new-ish here, which happens at the beginning of the year, oftentimes people come back to church or they're just uh, thinking, okay, it's going to make this year different than the last. If you're new, my name is Jeff Buckdam. I have the privilege of being one of the teaching pastors here, and we are going to uh, study some passages in God's Word here in the next few minutes. I'm just going to tell you ahead of time that I have several passages of Scripture, and so it might be a little bit hard for you to flip around in your Bibles. Normally, the first thing I say is open your Bibles to this particular passage, and we walk through a particular one. But today, I've got some special stuff I want to talk about from a whole bunch of passages of Scripture. So I will be going up to this little board and making sure that you can follow along that way. Uh, I have a friend who was a pastor for... Um, well, it would have been about 20 years at the same church. And uh, he decided uh, through much prayer with his wife that they were going to go to their next ministry position. There have been some challenges at the church over the previous, you know, couple years. And so they decided that this was going to be the right this was going to be the right time. They felt like their ministry has sort of run its course. And uh, he felt, I remember him telling me, I felt like whenever I sat in, in the room, uh, I was just talking, and people were just kind of glazing over because they'd heard it all before. And he was like, somebody else's voice saying the same stuff would be much more beneficial, so they decided that they were going to move on. Well, the church had this big party, of course. Been there 20 years. It's a huge uh, impact in the spiritual lives of so many of the people who were there. And so this big party, uh, different people from the congregation came along and gave a word, you know, like an encouraging word. And then the staff got up. They did little special skits and funny things. And then the staff got up and they gave like an open mic time where people would share the influence that this particular pastor had on their on their lives. He told me that about halfway through the entire event, he was crying pretty profusely because uh, he'd not heard this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you hear it in smattering, but most of the time you hear, even if you hear it, you're like, I, you hear the negative. Sometimes it takes like 10 positive to outweigh the one negative. And he had heard increasingly numbers of negative over the last years and had no idea that this was the impact that he had. Anyway, he said that at the end of the evening, his associate pastor, kind of the guy who was his right-hand guy, came up to him, put his arm around him and said, you're going to be really missed, but you, you know, you do know how much you've been loved. I hope this has been special for you, and he turned to the associate pastor and said, you know, if, if you guys had told me all this before, I probably wouldn't be leaving, right? Which is probably right. We're not really good at sharing uh, positive affirmation with each, with each other. We're not. We're very good at sharing critique <laughs> with each other. We know it's wrong. We know it's wrong in our marriages. We know it's wrong with a government. Man, do we know What's wrong with the government? We know what's wrong with the church. We know what's wrong with all this stuff. And so it's very easy for us to share those viewpoints with one another and with the people who are in charge. We often say that this thing needs to be fixed. And on the flip side, it's very easy for uh, government officials and pastors and others to say, well, actually, here are the problems with my congregation. Here are the, way, here are the ways that my people are getting it 
all wrong, especially if you're a pastor. You know, one of the things as a pastor you do, you take the Bible and you start explaining it, and it's really easy to go through the passages of Scripture that you're preaching on and say, I know a lot of people who fit this category, and none of them are me, right? <laughs> but I know a lot of people this is going to apply to. And if you're not a very good pastor, you look for those people during your sermons, and you preach right at them. You know what I mean? You know? I'm kidding, brother. I don't mean, or maybe I'm not. It's really hard, honestly, for us to get in the habit of sharing why it is that we thank God for each other. One of the things that you'll find, though, when you go to the scriptures and you go to, for example, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, who writes most of the letters in the New Testament, is that you'll find at the beginning of most of his letters, there's this extended section of thanksgiving. Like, here's how, when I pray to God, I thank him for you. Specifically, it's not just like some trite, well, I give thanks to God for you. Now let's get into the hard stuff that I need to tell you to get it right. Here's exactly what it is that I thank God for you. I'll give you a couple of examples in Philippians chapter 1. Philippian church had given Paul some money through the hand of one of their messengers, a guy named Epaphroditus, and he showed up. Paul was in prison. And in prison in those days, you, they didn't give you like three square meals and you didn't sit in a room with a toilet and stuff. They put you a hole, in a hole in the ground and if your friends could come or family could come and provide for you, then you would be able to live. But if you didn't have any friends or any family, you would die in that hole. So Paul was all alone, but this church in Philippi decided that they would send somebody to attend to his needs. They gave him some financial help, and they paid for blankets, and they paid for food, and they paid for all this stuff through the hand of their messenger, Epaphroditus. So when Paul writes his letter to them, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, <laughs> in all my remembrance, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You guys have demonstrated that we're in this together from the very moment I showed up, preached the gospel to you until, until now as I'm in prison. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, right? You've shown partnership and partakers together with me in my imprisonment. You didn't think of me as being somebody who was not, you know, was outside the bounds of your help. And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I'm just so thankful that you guys are so generous, is what he said. I, I, I can't explain to you how important it is that you've shown care for me in this particular moment. In the Thessalonian uh, church, the very beginning of the book of 1 Thessalonians, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, you Thessalonians, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, specifically your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We, we, we can see that you are, you are God's people because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full convictions. Great phrase, right? That the moment you believed, it wasn't just like, yeah, that seems like a good addition to an already full life. 
It was, I'm in. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. You guys were in a really hard spot, and you received the word in much affliction, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is like saying, look, you guys are such a great church that you became an example to all of the people, all the other churches and all of God's people in all of Illinois and Indiana. Like when I travel around and I talk about the best churches, I talk about you, Thessalonians. And most of us don't hear that kind of effusive praise in our lives. We don't, especially not in church, for goodness sake. So here's what I want to do. At the beginning of the year, you're always supposed to give some vision message, which is great. You know, here's where we're going and this is what we're going to do. But I tend to break the rules all the time. So here's what I want to do. Um... I want to tell you how I thank God for you. And by you, I mean Harvest Bible Chapel of 2023 slash 24. How I see the Spirit of God working in our midst together, things that I've noticed over time, and have actually in my prayers to the Lord said, I'm thankful, Lord, that this is what's real here, that I see these particular things so this could get really awkward. You ever sat down with somebody and they're like sharing their heart with you, and you're like, I don't want to make any eye contact, Right? Well, deal with it, right? You can look somewhere else if you want, but I'm just gonna keep talking. So here you go, five things. Five thanksgivings that I have for Harvest Bible Chapel. Number one, um, I, when I thank God for Harvest, I thank God for the generosity in this church. If I were gonna talk about Harvest to other people, I would say, and they said to you, oh, me, what, what are the kinds of things that are unique to Harvest? I would say, Man, they're generous, like remarkably generous. Generous churches are amazing. Uh, they're, they're the best. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, he comes to the Corinthians, he wants to collect some money for another church, a church in Jerusalem. I've talked about this passage before. It should sound a little familiar to you. So he's gonna come and he's gonna collect. They're having a hard time in, the, in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church. They don't have any money. They have a lot of needs. There are some people who are starving there. So he comes to some of the other churches that he's already planted and said, look, they need help. I need you to give me some special money so that I can carry it to them as a gift, okay? So it's a special offering. He goes to lots of different churches and some of the churches respond in different ways. One of the churches, the churches of Macedonia, actually, which means the Philippian church, they responded in such a remarkably generous way that he uses them now as an example to other churches. He kind of comes to the other churches to say, you guys don't want to be left behind by the Macedonian church, right? Because they gave a lot. You guys don't want those Indiana churches to think they're, they're better than you, right? I mean, come on. This is kind of his argument, Right? So here's what he says to them. We want you, Corinthians, you Illinois church, to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Indiana, Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction. So they're not having a good moment when we came and asked for it. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy 
So they were overflowing with joy and their extreme poverty. Aren't those weird phrases? Those are kind of opposite. You're supposed to have an abundance of money, right? (laughs) But an abundance of joy, but extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. <laughs> Paul's like, hey, we need to raise some of this money. And the Macedonian churches are like, cool, how much? And he's like, well, you guys don't have a lot. That's okay, whatever you need, it's good. And then Paul's like, look, well, why don't you just let it sit for a minute, okay? It's not a big deal. We'll just come back next week to it. And all week long, they're like, no, please, let us give, let us give, let us give. Generous, remarkably generous church. I've been around generous churches before. I, I, I was in uh, New Zealand I was a teaching pastor at a church in, in uh, the South Island of New Zealand for uh, five years. We had just had our second child, uh, and we didn't have any money. Uh, Kiwi churches don't pay really well, <laughs> and uh, we, so, so we were barely making it. The Lord always provided, but we, were, we didn't have anything extra. And of course, you know, when you have a child overseas, you want to come back and have, you know, see your family and all that kind of stuff. And so we, we were saying to each other, my wife and I, hey, it would be great if we would have a chance to be able to get back to the Seattle area. Now, flights from New Zealand to Seattle at that time were like, I don't know, 1,500 bucks a pop that, for, for an adult ticket. And then you could drag your little ones with you on your lap, which, by the way, is a special kind of terror. If you're, if you're flying, just so if those of you who know, we're like 14 hours in a plane and a metal tube in the sky with my toddler. Yeah. So we were like, all right, we, it's going to cost us probably around four grand or so for the, all, for, for all four of us to go. Kids were young enough to get cheap tickets. So we didn't tell anybody. Went to church one morning, preached a sermon, came back to my house. Uh, drove into the garage. My wife got out of the car. I got out of the car. Went inside. Started making some food. She's doing something for the kids. And she said, oh, I forgot this thing in the car. I walked back out to the car. Opened the door. Found the thing. Pulled it out. And as I was pulling it out, I looked on the ground. And there was an envelope there. A big fat, fat envelope on the ground. Halfway under the car. And I picked it up. And I looked inside, and there was $4,000 there. Apparently, my wife had decided to drop it on the, on the floor of the garage, you know, because who needs this, right? I'll just leave it here, she said. Fell out of her pocket or whatever. So I came inside, and I said, what in the world is this? You know, have you been selling drugs? What have you been doing? What have you been doing? And she, she said, oh, is that the envelope that, that was, somebody passed by me at church and they just dropped the envelope in, that envelope in a purse. I don't, didn't see who it was. And there was no name on it. And on the front, it said uh, to go home. Four grand. Didn't want any 
accolades. They didn't want to even be noticed. They were like, yeah, you know what? Here's $4,000 for you to go home. I've been around generous churches. And I got to tell you that Harvest Bible Chapel surpasses all the ones I've been in. Now, when I first got to Harvest, I remember sitting in a meeting and uh, they were, some of the operations people were giving a, a list of, uh, okay, so this is the giving per giving unit. Giving units are like, you know, sometimes it's just an individual, sometimes it's a couple, sometimes it's a family, right? So here's the amount of money a giving unit gives at Harvest Bible Chapel. And I saw the number and I said, that can't be right. That's no, there's no way that's right. It's way too high. Like, are you counting wrong? Other churches don't give that amount. In fact, the number that was on the board was about one and a half times the giving that I was accustomed to in churches I've been in that are really generous. And yet Harvest was one and a half times. I said, that's nuts. And they said, no, I know. Isn't it crazy? It's just like people show up and they just love to give here. I came to the right place. <laughs> I said, unbelievable. I think it's... I think it's amazing, and it's shown up in some really cool places. So this last Christmas, uh, some of the elders came forward and said, hey, you know what would be really cool is that for our, all of our staff, we would like to give a $50 gift card as a Christmas thank you for the end of the year, right? This is a Christmas bonus. is a $50 gift card to a restaurant or to Amazon or whatever it is. It would be really great if people in the church could actually come and give these $50 cards, and then we'll collect them all together. And during the, the Christmas um, party that the church staff has, everyone will come around, and they'll all be able to select one of the cards and be able to go use it for them and their family. One of the people I talked to said, man, this is not going to go well <laughs> because I, I, I just don't know if people are going to give all that. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I don't know. My experience at Harvest has been pretty crazy. So anyway, we, we included everybody who works at Harvest, part-time, full-time, didn't matter. The $50 for the guy who's cleaning the floors for 12 hours a week and $50 for the guy who's preaching. So uh, we, we, we collected them. We had a deadline date and... We needed uh, 186 cards to cover everybody, including the people who work for the school. We got 237. So if you see me eating out, <clears throat> you, no, I'm not taking the extras. We're going to use the extras as like, hey, we're having a staff party. We're going to do a draw. Or if you do a special dance, we'll give you a gift card. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, what are you talking about? And when I talked to some of the campus pastors, they were like, yeah, this is nothing, man. This, this church is like that. If you ever ask them to do anything, they'll do it. It's true. It's absolutely true. Okay, uh, two years ago, uh, I had just arrived basically a few months earlier, and we realized that our, our giving as a church was, uh, we were behind in our giving. So I just stood up on a, during, before Christmas and said, hey, we'd like to meet our budget goal here, and anything extra we're going to give to church planting in the city, and we're also going to help pay off some of the debt that we've accumulated on our mortgages and stuff, okay? So we went through the whole thing, and then uh, they accumulated all the money at the end, and we were up $400,000. Do you guys realize you realize that there are like seven or eight churches that have been planted in Chicago because of that extra money. Like we, we handed it as like church planting training money and the guys who were using it in the city with the Chicago partnership were like, this is awesome, do you have any more? And we're like, yeah, I don't know, sure. So this last year, we needed, in, 
in December. I said, we need $2.1 million in December to meet our budget goals. Uh, at the end of December, we had $2.25 million. That's $150,000 to the good, right? Okay. What you don't know is that weeks prior, we were praying about it and saying, you know, Lord, we just, we, we were so excited to be able to help plant these churches in this city that whatever money that we get extra, we're going to just use to do that kind of stuff. So guess what? We're going to give a whole bunch of money to some church planters in the city, and hopefully we're going to have a bunch more. But that's because Harvest, I don't know what it is in the DNA of this church. It's just filled with people who love to give. And I cannot tell you how much I thank God for that. It is, it is, I don't thank God for me. I, I thank God for you. I thank God for us. I thank God for what it is that we can do because of that heart. So like Paul said to the Philippians, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Two, I also thank God for this church's love for God's word. Passion. For God's word. One of the, if you ever ask the Bible, hey Bible, what do you say about yourself? What are you claiming to be? One of the passages that you should immediately go to is in 2 Timothy, where the Apostle Paul describes what he thinks scripture is or what scripture claims to be. So here's his line in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture. Hey scripture, what are you? Well, all scripture is breathed out by God. Just like when you say words, or I'm saying words right now, those words are a product of me breathing out. They're God-breathed, which means that the words of scripture are God's very words. Yes, they're communicated through human authors with their human personalities, but God superintends that his very words are gonna be communicated by Paul or Matthew. So all scripture are God's very words. And because it's God's very words, it's profitable for, now note these, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You guys ever sat down and said, you know what I'd like today is to be reproved. I, I, I'm looking to be corrected This word training is a word that's used for bringing up children. It's the way that you tra train a child. You know, it looks like train a child, of course, right? So when your kids are little, you, you follow after them. Especially if it's the, I mean, if it's the first one, you follow after them. The third one, you're like, yeah, see ya, right? But the, the first one, you're like following after them all the time. You want to make sure that they're safe. And so in order to do that, they'll start wandering toward power outlets, you know, with their fork in their hand. And you're like, whoa, hey, 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 And you steer them away and you pull the fork away and they're like, ah, they freak out. Your whole life is about correction and steering them away. You act as a reprover, a corrector, a trainer, a teacher. If you ever teach your kids, it doesn't stop, by the way, there. For those of you who are young parents, I'm sorry to tell you that, you know, teaching the kids to drive is coming. And when you teach the kids to drive, it goes from, from you following them to you sitting in the seat and praying, all praying, 
And then they'll be driving around and thinking, they'll probably be doing pretty well in the empty parking lot that you started in for a little while, but there's, there's always one light pole in the middle of that parking lot and they find it, right? It's like a homing beacon. And they're, and they're looking off at the trees, am I doing really well, right? It's really great. And you're like, no, and you steer them away. You're a reprover. You're a corrector. So the image here is basically of the Bible, that God using scripture to change your course. That when you come and you hear the Bible preached, or when you sit down and you study scripture, what you're doing is you're opening yourself for the profitable, reproving, correcting, rebuking, training. Now listen, there's a lot of people who think about that and go, yuck, right? Like I said, you don't wake up in the morning and go, I need some reproof today. And so people, often Christians, when they are reproved by scripture, they come up, we come up with some really interesting tactics to try to get out from under it. One of the tactics is, does it really say that though? I mean, I know it says that's a command here, but surely there's a historical background that makes that command the exact opposite of what that command says. So then we go and find that historical background and the internet's full of people who have that background apparently. You know, it's like people, 200 people watching this YouTube video. I watched a YouTube video and they explained this in a way that nobody in the history of the church has ever explained it. And they're right. Okay. But we get out from under it and therefore we can say, well, I'm still honoring scripture. Right? I'm just honoring it the way it was originally intended. And I'm like, was that really the way it was originally intended? Yeah, well, I have this historical background that makes that true. And then there's the other one, which is a little, the other way that people deal with it and try to get out from under it, and that is the Thomas Jefferson approach. Thomas Jefferson was known for uh, cutting out, literally cutting out sections of his Bible. The sections that talked about the deity of Christ, he said, that can't possibly be true. I love the moral stuff, I just don't like the deity of Christ stuff. And so whenever he'd see it, he'd just scissor it out, right? It was a very holy Bible. That was a great joke, right? <laughs> Come on. Right? Yeah, you and me, you're dead, right? Yeah, that's right. But think about that. Okay, we don't do that. Well, that's really a terrible thing to do. Nobody would ever go and cut things out of the scriptures. Oh, wouldn't they? Do you know how many churches, when they're preaching through passages of scripture, will skip this section? It's a little bit hard, so we'll go to the next one. How many people, when they're reading the Bible, are like, yeah, I don't want to really read about the doctrine of election here. Nah, makes no sense. I'm getting out of it. I'm not even gonna think about it. But you know what people at Harvest do? If I skip a section of a passage of scripture, I will get an email or somebody walking up to me in Costco and saying, why'd you duck it? <laughs> and I'll be like, wait, what are you talking about? I didn't duck it. Oh, you ducked it, all right. You know, like there's a whole thing going on in there and everyone needs to know, but you scared Like, I can't get away with it. When I preach, you know, when I have to preach hard passages of Scripture, things about like, hey, you know what? Uh, Those who persevere to the end will be saved. That to quit midway through is to quit the race, and it's only the finishers of the race who receive the prize. That's Bible. If I have to preach something like that, I preach it. And invariably, somebody comes up to me in the hallway or that week and says, hey, Preacher, thanks for telling the truth. 
That doesn't happen in a lot of churches, guys. That doesn't happen. Thank you for telling us off. What? It's a great place to work. I can say anything as long as it's scripture. I love, I love that you love the word of God. Third, I love the perseverance of this church. Uh, the book of James, chapter one, has one of the most interesting passages of scripture anywhere because it is audaciously surprising. Here's why. James says, I want you to count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? Well, we're going through a difficult patch here and everything's going wrong. Praise the Lord. What? What are you talking about? We do the exact opposite. Everybody does the exact opposite. Why in the world should I consider it joy when I encounter trials? Well, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, that you may be mature. So, so trials create perseverance which creates maturity. This is the only path to maturity. It's the only one. So if you want to be the kind of person who can face difficult things in your life without falling over, the only way to get there is through trials, making you callous and strong so that you can be that person, right? So after Christmas, uh, I start, we know this. After Christmas, I got on my bike because it was kind of nice one day and I started riding my bike and about halfway through riding my bike, everything's flat here by the way, I'm used to riding hills and stuff and so I was like, piece of cake, you know, I get on my bike and I start riding about halfway through riding my bike, I wanted to die. My legs were so sore. I used to have muscles in my legs but somehow over the Christmas period they were replaced with fruitcake <laughs> and I can't, I'm so tired, I wanted to throw up. Uh, I kept, I thought, this is crazy. I can't possibly do this. It was one of the most horrible experiences I've had in several years. But in the midst of it, I was thinking to myself, this is good. And the reason I know it's good is because this is the only path that will lead me to be able to ride further. Everybody's going into the gym right, right now with the knowledge that the only way for me to get my figure back, in order for me to get my strength back, in order for me to face and do the things I want to do in June, I have to start now by training my body. Which means, of course, you're breaking down the muscle to build more muscle. We know that that's how it works. We know that. So, have joy. In the midst of trials. So there's a personal application to that, of course, which is that a lot of people who are in the room, including me and everybody else, you are facing various trials. One kind or another, and you need to understand that you can actually rejoice in the midst of it, just like I can rejoice in the midst of my bike ride, because you know where this is going. 
that this is actually going to lead you to be the kind of person that's able to face more difficult things without falling over, which is exactly what maturity is. You want that. You don't want life to constantly be knocking you over. The only way to get there is for you to have the wind blow a little bit and have to lift the weights a little bit. Right, but my point here is I actually think that churches are a lot like individuals when it comes to this. I think churches mature like people do. And I think that truly healthy churches are those who've been through some stuff. They've had to develop some muscles, and I would tell you that Harvest Bible Chapel has been in the gym over the last number of years. And the result of the gym and the heartache and the tired muscles is a stronger church than it's ever been. I know this because when I meet people who are longtime harvest attendees, I usually ask them a few questions. The number one question I ask is, when did you start attending harvest? And a lot of people are like, well, I was here at the very beginning, you know, 1989 or whatever. And I'll, I'll say, wow, that's amazing. That's a long time that you've been, <laughs> been here. I, I got here in 1994. I got here in, in 2001. I got here in whatever. And, and I immediately say, you know, the church has had some difficulty over that period of time, right? Things were going, I mean, the church grew really, really big. And then the, over a period of time, really troubles with leadership and troubles with all sorts of issues. Lots of people left. Why did you stay? And the response almost at every turn is because I learned in the midst of that that this church is not about any personality. It's not about a program. It's not about any kind of consumer thing. It's about Jesus and him alone. And I stayed because I'm serving and worshiping Jesus. And until that church closes down or stops worshiping Jesus, I'm here. Now, let me tell you. If you go plant a church today, one of the first things that you will learn is the people who come to your church are coming for the programs, the personality. They're coming for the consumer goods that you can provide them, which is understandable. We live in that kind of society. But at some point, the people who come with those for the consumer goods have to become people who are actually there for Jesus. And I'm telling you that Harvest is filled with people who are actually here for Jesus. That it, it, it doesn't actually matter whether or not the guy who's preaching is, is great at doing it or not. If Jesus is being taught, we're in. That's a mature church. Now you can imagine, imagine what God could, think about what God did through Harvest in its earlier days. When people were here for some of the consumer stuff. Imagine what God would do with a mature church. I thank God for the perseverance of the people of this church. I said there were five. I'm number four. I also thank God for the growing humility of this church. If I go around and I do an interview on the streets, they call it Vox Pop, which is the voice of the people, right? Take my little, my little phone and say, so what do you want from 2024? We walked around the city of Chicago or the suburbs or whatever. What do you want from 2024? The answers, I'm pretty sure, would fall into these categories. I want more money. They, they might not say it that brashly, 
they'd say, well, I would like to have a, more of this stuff. But what they mean is I want the stuff that money can buy. But I want to have more money. I want to have more power. I want to have more beauty. Tired of the years taking it away. I want to have more success. I would love to have more fame. I think that most of the answers would fall into those categories. And if those people got those things, they would say, I am blessed. This is the language used. I'm blessed. You know how you're blessed? It's because you have that stuff. Blessed are the moneyed. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the beautiful, successful, and famous. Blessed are they. Yes? I mean, you get to Jesus, the first sermon he preaches. A crowd's coming him to all over the place. The first sermon he preaches in the book of Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Even people who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who don't have it. They don't have justice. They're the oppressed. That's crazy talk. It's almost like Jesus came along and said, you know all the stuff that you guys want? All the things that you think are going to make your life amazing? And you're going to rise up and say, I'm blessed because I got those things. Actually, the blessings are in humility. That the greatest blessing God can give you is humbleness. Why? Well, Oswald Chambers, old Christian, old Christian pastor, he wrote a great devotional. My utmost for his highest. If people are looking for a devotional for the year, you know, you just flip through and read Read the, read the little things. It's one page long each time. He had a lovely saying in the, his book. He said, the greatest gift God can ever give a man is the knowledge of his own destitution. Because it's only through the knowledge of your destitution that you realize that you have nothing but God. That your whole life, when everything else is stripped away, all that's left is God. So if you get everything stripped away and you are dropped down to the very base level, you are blessed because it's at that point that you lift your eyes to heaven and say, blessed be God. So I say all that because if I look at the story arc of Harvest Bible Chapel over the years, I will tell you that from my perspective as a relatively new person walking in and somebody who knows a little bit about it, after spending two and a half years talking to people, Harvest Bible Chapel started with a fantastic ministry vision that grew and grew and grew. And then at some point, and we can argue when, but at some point, we kind of started smelling ourselves. We were sort of like, we pretty much do all this stuff right. And we probably should put our name on all the things because our name is the best name and everybody, we're not gonna partner with anybody else, we're just gonna do our stuff. And there was a kind of hubris in that. A sort of arrogance, a pride that comes into that. And then the Lord, in his grace, comes along and drops the church down to the base level. They almost close the doors. And all we have left is Jesus. 
This is a story arc that is well known in the Bible. I will give you one of my favorite passages that has this story arc. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. It came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. This is the biggest, baddest, militarily strong country in the world at the time. So read White House here. He was on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered. Did you love that? He wasn't asked anything, but he answered. Is not this great Babylon which... I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Behold my greatness. <laughs> While the words were still in his king's mouth, behold my greatness. There fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you'll be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over until you, until you know that the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. You're only here because God puts you here. You have what you have because God gave it to you. Without him, nothing. You're going to learn that, brother. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers, and his nails were like the bird's cly. <laughs> all, seriously, on all fours. <laughs> this is the king, right? This is by Trump. What? I mean, you'd pick your guy. <laughs> The end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, well, this is a good move, isn't it? Lifted my eyes to heaven. I reason returned to me and I blessed. I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, as he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Where's all the eyes, Nebi? What happened to the eyes and the mice? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, oh, there they are, in the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. But now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right. And his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Listen very closely to me. This was a gift to Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord restored him to beyond what he had before. But when he had beyond what he had before, it wasn't about him anymore. It was about the king of heaven. And everything he had was to give glory to the king and the king alone. Man, I love that Harvest Bible Chapel truly knows that we have nothing without Jesus. 
We live only with what he provides. We will go only where he grants his favor. We will trust him for our daily bread. It's different to have gone through the swamp and learned the glories of the flat dry land. <laughs> you don't rejoice in the flat dry land unless you've been through the swamp. We've been through the swamp. Last one. Listen, uh, I love that Harvest Bible Chapel has a desire for impact. I think it's always had a desire for impact. I love that in this church there are a whole bunch of uh, people who are adamant that we should go and take the next step. Um, my, this is my last passage of scripture I wanted to show you is in Numbers 14. It's, this is when the people of Israel, they come across the Red Sea, they go see the promised land, they send in some spies, the spies come back, 12 of them, and 10 of them are like, yeah, the people are huge, right? I think it's the Netherlands. It's, I mean, they're, no? Okay, not enough Dutch people. That's a joke. They're really tall. And then uh, they come back and say, there's no way we can beat them. There's no way. But two guys are like, what are you talking about? Here's how it works. Uh, then all the congregation raised a loud cry because of the bad report. People wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to just go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, oh, let's choose a leader. Let's ditch Moses and Aaron. Let's go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron, exhausted, I'm sure, fell with their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And then Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb. Come on now. Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, look. The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. They are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't, don't fear them. And then all the congregation said, we got to stone these guys. <laughs> but the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting, and all the people of Israel got chose up. Okay, so here's why this story is so cool to me. Don't you want to be those people like Caleb and Joshua? <laughs> Like in the face of everybody else who's like, well, I don't know, I don't think God's gonna come through. You're like, come on! We're talking about the living God! So David was arrayed in battle against Goliath. Saul and everyone else is like, man, he's big, we can't possibly do this. David's like, what are you talking about? He's puny compared to God. What I love about Harvest Bible Chapel is it is filled with Caleb's and Joshua's. It's not a, seriously, not a week goes by before somebody comes up to me and say, hey, when are we going to start like taking the hills, man? When are we going to start reaching the lost? When are we going to start talking about planting those churches we used to do? When are we going to get back to doing the work of the ministry that was expanding and growing beyond the walls of our church? When are we going to get to that kind of thing? And what has been so amazing for me over the last several months is that I've been able to sit down in rooms with people and start to dream 
about what will be. And our, listen, our church over the next, I mean, we've got like four different massive uh, goals that we're trying to set out and a five-year goals and three-year goals and one-year goals that'll be all apparent to you in the days to come. But here's what I need you to hear. I am so thankful to God for you, for what has been here, for what's ahead. I'm thankful that we're in this together, but I'm mostly thankful that the Lord is with us. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm thankful for my friends, and I'm thankful that you call us to such a, a, a great future. We are in your hands, Lord. What you want to do with us and with this church is in your hands. Uh, we, we plead with you, Father, to use us as you will. However that looks like, Father, would you find us faithful to walk in it? And Father, for my friends, I, I, I cannot express to them enough how full my heart is by our fellowship together, our, our, our gathering, our our future. I pray, Father, that the excitement that you've grown in my heart, Father, would be something that would, would bleed through everybody for, for your glory alone. And we pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.